Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. When you're done, make sure to head to our website at unapologists.com where you can see all of our latest updates and our season lineup. And while you're there, head over to the support page so you can find out ways to keep the show going. Enjoy today's episode. Podcast. Welcome to season four of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Joining us this season, we have the brains, charisma, and audio samurai of this podcast, Christopher Paulson. Well, let me tell you, Vito, uh, I have to do something because you carry the show. <laughs> Carried into the pits of hell, maybe. But <laughs> anyway, we are so excited. Like, Chris, I haven't been this excited for a season or just for something. I think the last time I was this excited was, I, I don't know, the birth of my son. Like, I, I, like honestly, like, we, we have an incredible lineup this season. Like, I, I season three blew us away. And then se- season four, we're just floored by the amazing people we have on. And the thing that just, the thing that really, really, I guess, the thing that really, really blows my mind with this whole thing, Vito, is that you and I decided we need to talk more. Let's make sure we set time apart a week to just make sure that we are cultivating a positive friendship. And positive, yes. Four seasons later of a podcast how like you know it's amazing and the feedback that people have given us has been amazing the people we've met have been amazing i've become a better teacher and i didn't think that was possible oh because <laughs> you were already legendary i actually be- <laughs> <laughs> I, I just hearing from everybody has actually helped me become a, a good teacher and not <laughs> one but you know what chris we we are starting on a very amazing note. When would you say? I, Vito, I'm excited. Because tonight, you know, it, it's not very often you meet, you get to speak with someone who had such an influence in your own practice. And I know I've had the opportunity to talk to many people on this podcast who mentored me, who I looked up to, who um, really had something unique to bring to it. But this person right here, let me give you some background. When I first was told I was teaching middle school language arts, I thought, okay, my only goal for the year is I want these kids reading. And how can I do that in an authentic way? So I started searching around and I came across this random YouTube video with someone interviewing this wonderful teacher, giving an off-the-cuff answer. And I said, this person is brilliant. I need to absorb everything she has ever said or written. And I bought her entire back library and read it. And it not only changed the way I approached a language arts classroom, but it completely changed the way I thought about just being in a classroom. And um, so I, I, I'm just so honored to have her on tonight. I, like, are you ready for the intro here? Because I think like I can't, I'm ready. I, I can't hype this enough. She currently teaches freshman composition at Plymouth State University, New Hampshire. She was a teacher and literacy coach in public schools for 34 years. 21 of those at Kennett High School in North Conway. She is the co-author of 180 Days with Kelly Gallagher, the author of Book Love, Right Beside Them, which won the James Britton Award, co-authored two books, co-authored two books with her mentor, Don Graves, uh, co-edited with Tom Newkirk, who we've mentioned before. A collection of Graves' work, Children Run to Write. 
She is the president of the Book Love Foundation, which we're going to talk about tonight. All around incredible human being, um, amazing teacher, the face of language arts classrooms today. We have Penny Kittle on the show tonight. Penny, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, but I can't quite live up to that hype. Thank you very much. Well, you have to I'm know. Sure you're in my office with my corgi and my notebook, and you know, it's just <laughs> normal life here. <laughs> Well, and that's what's beautiful, right? We're all just human beings doing our best, and, and yes. we just never know the impact you have. But I want to let you know that you've had huge impact, and uh, so we're so honored to have you here. And like all our guests, we love to hear about your story. So, can you tell us the story of how you got into teaching and what led you on that trajectory you're on today? Um, there's really only two things I ever wanted to be. One was a teacher, and one was a professional athlete. And I wanted to be a tennis player at Wimbledon more than I wanted to be a teacher, I must admit, but I wasn't good enough. So um, teaching always appealed to me. I, I can't tell you why, except that I know in my program at Oregon State, we had a different grade level or situation each year. And every single one of them I loved, I would have stayed. I would have stayed as a special educator. That was one year as a seventh grade language arts teacher, as a first grade teacher. I just loved it all. So I think I was born to spend my time with little people and kind of big people now, but writers, readers, <laughs> thinkers. Uh, well, that, that's amazing. So you just, you just knew, you just knew aside from Wimbledon, which, you know, yeah, they didn't want me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I started teaching in California third grade in a year round school, which was ideal for a, first year teacher because I had a big break coming like every three weeks or six weeks or nine weeks. So I could plan and make it through three weeks with these third graders and then have a month to plan more. So then I moved to Oregon, Washington, California, Ohio, Michigan, <laughs> all the way out to New Hampshire. And I just, in all of those places, found ways to stay in classrooms. And so let's, uh, let's kind of jump into it then. You're jumping into a classroom and what kind of led you on like, hmm, I, I need to do something a bit different than the norm. The let's sit down, write tests and quizzes and read together. Like what, 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 uh, what kind of led you on that path? I would say, um, I think it was a real benefit that I was trained as an elementary educator. So I started by teaching kids how to read. Right. And then when you're teaching fourth, fifth grade, um, your primary goal is that they're going to love it, that they're going to continue reading, that they're going to read a lot. And from there, I went to middle school. And in middle school, it was still pretty easy. I was following Nancy Atwell and Linda Reef, and I was just reading. I actually read Don Graves my second year of teaching. Someone handed it to me, said, I think this is a book you'd like. And that idea that we should center our practice on kids, Don Graves, Lucy Calkins, the two books I carried everywhere. And Lessons from a Child, Lucy's first book is about following a second grader, third grader in her practice as a writer. What does she do to revise? And I was fascinated. I just basically patterned my work after the two of them. And I, you know, I changed schools and states so many times that I often didn't even know what the curriculum was. I was following kids. So I absolutely love this idea of i was in first grade I, and i found i loved it and i was in second and i loved it and i did spec yeah. it and i loved it and i loved it 
And in every different assignment you had, you found there was something that you could absolutely love about it. Because how often is that parking lot conversation? I can't believe I got this course, you know? And I love Mm -hmm. that idea of just the love of teaching and the love of supporting young people on their learning journey. I love that. Isn't that though, like if you fall in love with teaching, it carries you, period, right? Big Um, vibe. (laughs) I was like, you know, the other day I'm sitting here and I think we've all been there because um, this has been such a long period of being disconnected from family and friends and all of the disruption, right? I taught all online last year and was not good at it. I mean, I just wasn't. Um, And I was writing in my notebook about how often I have difficulty sleeping and I've had a lot of friends dealing with really, I mean, losing people. And so there's been a lot on my mind, but this is what I wrote. Um, to have work that I love, that begins with a long drive through the mountains, watching the first leaves begin to turn, then back mid-afternoon to stop at the Squam Lake Market where every single thing is delicious. In between, I write with students. I watch them write. I listen to them. I see the young restlessness and hope or the journeys they've already traveled. Alyssa's cancer at 15, Alex's younger brother memorialized in a tattoo, Colby's secret life of fan fiction and reading, Bree's misery with her roommates. It's a lot, actually, but it's the living. The chord of life struck each class period when we all come together. Loss, love, curiosity, fear, the marrow trapped in our limbs, reaching to connect. That reminds me of why I get up tomorrow morning and drive across the mountains with all these notebooks. I've got like two bags of them to, to return to kids. This is good stuff, teaching. <laughs> what I picked up on most from that was the young restlessness and hope. And isn't that the image of a student? There's They're, they're this little ball of potential just waiting to explode with the hope that they have and and we have this amazing this amazing honor to guide them walk with them yes an honor to know them and 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 really that is the heart of education it's that relationships that you build with the student with that limited time you have with them in the classroom, you get to spend next to whoever is at home. You are that next mentor and guide in their life. And you spend the second most time amount of time with them and how much we need to cherish that and just build that. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your practice, it's, you know, you had, Donald Murray as your mentor and you're definitely mm-hmm. Donald Graves as well. They huge influences in your craft. And, but, but you've essentially taken their ideas and adapted them and taken them to the stratosphere. Now it's pretty much the Penny Kittle method. So, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I think so. Uh, so can, can, can you walk us through like bringing that in and kind of how you grew that and where it's at now? Hmm. I think that um, what, what struck me right away. So I was a, um, my first year I was teaching third grade and I was doing all these like, um, bookmaking and things with kids. But in my second year, when I read graves, I really got this sense of what, um, it meant to confer with kids. 
And so that's really the heart of everything I do, both in reading and writing, is conferring, sitting beside a kid and saying, what is it that I can help you with? Um, what are you thinking about? Where are you struggling? You know, and if you don't have that authentic, I'm watching your body language and I can see your vulnerability and I can see that you're embarrassed to tell me you don't know who Martin is in Dear Martin, a conference I had Monday. But I accepted it. I'm like, oh, no, I totally get this. Because look, it's like, the, you know what I mean? You can show them in the text and you can and you can make it less shameful to not know, right? Because the kid's feeling like I'm supposed to know. And the teacher has this opportunity to, to kind of be beside them. So it didn't matter um, of all of the things that I read from both Murray and Graves and all the conversations that we had live because I was so blessed to, to be with both of them. It was always about kids. It was always, you know, I would go up to Don Graves' house and I'd be like, okay, so since you are the expert, I got to tell you about this kid. And I tell you every single thing I'm doing is not working. So you have got to tell me what I'm going to try tomorrow. And he would say something like, Okay, so this was a first grader who would not write. He goes, why don't you sit down next to him and you just write in your notebook? And I'm like, brilliant. Why can't I think of this stuff on my own? But that's, they mentored me in how to think about the work and how to think about the problem solving and the kids that were in front of me and not to think about the curriculum or what anybody else thought those kids needed because I knew them better. And that's the piece that I want teachers to land on, right? That idea that, Somebody else outside of your classroom writing curriculum for you, that does not make a lot of sense because you're the one sitting in that room. And you know, if I go in tomorrow and I read a line from every single one of the essays they just turned in, there's a sense of community that comes together right then. I don't even have to identify the kids. That's not in my curriculum guide. That's me saying, I am working so hard right now to get my kids to talk to each other and be together because they haven't been in school since their junior year of high school, right? And now they're on campus. And so curriculum and instruction and assessment, you think about those three parts, what Graves and Murray taught me to do is say, who's closest to the kids in the room, the teacher? Instruction is the most important thing. Curriculum assessment are this ring around the rest of it. They're fine, you know, we wrote essays, yes, and you know, we're in for our next project, but that is not the heart of what teaching is. Teaching is instruction. It's sitting beside kids and going, I know what you need next, Vito. I'm going to I'm gonna guess that it might be this. And then you tell me if this is going to be helpful. What I really like about what you just told us too is the idea of mentorship because so many people come into the, the teaching profession and it's almost like they need almost a permission to do that because mm -hmm. there is a curriculum and there is assessment and there is all that stuff. And and you go and you think, I, I know that there's something there. And it's almost like that mentorship gave you that foot in the door that, wait, I can just be with them and walk with them on their journey. And, and I, I think that's a very powerful message that yes, you can be with them on the journey. And sometimes it takes that veteran teacher or that mentor just to let you know, yes, it's okay. It does. My daughter's um, in her third year of teaching. So I know really well what it's like to be a first year teacher right now, right? And the kind of mentoring that she needs to give herself permission 
to do things that don't match up with the state assessment. Uh, this this is, I think, where education needs to be because mm-hmm. I think all great teachers do that anyway. Uh, well, you know, just on Monday, I had a, a student who's a writing major at Plymouth come to interview me because he's interviewing English department people. And he said, what was your most difficult day teaching? And I said, oh, I can tell you immediately because I remember it so distinctly. And it's one of those where you have to decide what are you going to do in that moment? And I think that's what we forget, that that is all part of teaching. Kids are reading us all the time. They're, they're paying attention to who we are as human beings. And so if we have to change what we plan to do, it isn't that we ever lose sight of it. My students are very aware that I have important goals and that I'm always working towards those. But I'm going to stop and do what's important too. There's a lot of big vibes going on on this end. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> There's a lot of big vibes happening. So uh, for, for anyone listening, if you haven't picked up any works by Miss Penny Kittle here, you, you just go pause this podcast, turn it off and go read them all right now because you, you need to catch up because this is the, because this is like the conversation that uh, we, we all need to be having. Um, but, but on that note, you, you do have uh, a recent publication that's with Kelly Gallagher again, uh, Four Essential Studies, which is essentially the extension to 180 days. Uh, so w- w- what are you hoping educators get out of it? What, what's the message you want to drive home? I mean, we've already driven home a few already, but in this book, what are you really trying to drive home there? Well, so you may not know that Kelly and I, the 180 Days Project finished in 2016, and then it came out in 2018. That was the year I left the K-12 system. And so it had come out, it had just come out, and I said to Kelly one time, talking to him, do you know what? I know the next book I want to write. It's going to talk about the four things every kid needs, but when they leave high school. Because now I was teaching college freshmen. And I was like, these kids, there are things that are essential that they need and they don't have walking into the college. And I am a first generation to college um, graduate from my all the decades and you know generations in my family. I feel so strongly about students who are aspirational and take that leap and show up at campus and they're not sure that they're ready, but I wanna give them every possible chance to succeed. That's what this book came from. There's things kids have got to be able to do when they walk into a college campus. Okay, so I, I know we we one of the things mentioned in there is, is poetry. Any anything else that just briefly you wanted to touch upon? Like the, these are four things you well, need to do. The first like, thing, um, the entire book is around the idea that um, students need to be more independent and confident, and that you can't get students to independence and confidence as readers and writers unless you let go and they explore. And one of the courses that I taught at my high school was called research writing. And they had a whole semester to stay with one really big idea that they were going to turn into a Ted talk and a 20 page researched, um, really, you know, well-developed kind of feature article. And the reason for that was my daughter had four 10-page papers her first year as a freshman at Providence College. And she called me and said, I, I never wrote anything of this length in high school. What, how am I going to do this? And I was like, this is a kid who was number four in her class. Like, that doesn't even make sense that she wouldn't feel like she was ready. Well, I'm at Plymouth State, which is, um, you know, not a college that is uh, Ivy League by any means, but it 
draws kids from all over, Haiti, Dominican, like I get kids from so many different settings, but they have one thing in common. They don't believe they write well. And almost to a kid, they haven't read in years. They haven't read a whole book. Now, come on. (laughs) (laughs) It makes no sense that we would send kids off to school who've been pretending to read, and we know it, and then following (laughs) formulas. Right. And standardized work that does not exist in college. There's no five paragraph essay allowed. There's a there's a uh-oh, big project uh-oh. called she said it, Chris. You just made Vito problem, the happiest right? person a, in the world. No, seriously, though the, on my campus, there's an interdisciplinary class that every freshman takes called Tackling a Wicked Problem. And you have to figure out an answer to one of the big questions in the world. So they can choose mass incarceration or climate change or healthcare, whatever it is. You're going to try to figure out a solution. Now, think about that. Who has prepared a kid to figure out what to research, how to do that, how to put it together? All of it. There's this sense of students should be launched by the end of high school into independent inquiry. It raises curiosity. It raises engagement. So that's what the book's about. And you actually wrote an article, The Curse of Helicopter Teaching, yeah, kind of on this fact as well. A much truncated version of what you're speaking about here, which yep. is like, we got to back off and we got to trust our students. Not Well, we got to give our students time to wrestle with it too. Like, wow. I personally love the idea of raise curiosity. Yeah. You know, because you can, you can scroll through Instagram or TikTok or whatever, but that concept of raising curiosity about large questions of the world, and I think what it does too is it it helps people to situate themselves as a being in the world, knowing mm-hmm. that I'm one, but I can make a difference. The world. So we're looking at these huge problems. So this idea of raising curiosity, I think, really helps people to understand who they are. Because when you're going mm-hmm. to run into something, there's a reason why that student picked that problem. There's a reason why they took mm-hmm. their research the direction they did. There's a reason why the answer that they wanted to happen was the one they were seeking. And it all starts with, what are you curious about? Mm-hmm. And what a free, what a freeing question we can ask young people. What are you curious about? Oh, I'm, I'm in heaven right now. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also about the the essential practices that we can establish right now in our classrooms that begin to give kids that confidence. And I, because I don't want to act like, I don't think teachers have good intentions. They absolutely do, right? Teachers, the reason that we hover like helicopters over kids is we want them to be successful. Mm -hmm. Their dependence on us is just a part of that equation that we have to break. So you see students that are, um, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And I said, well, well, what if you did know? That's a famous Ellen Keene answer. What if you did know? What would you do? And they'll say things like, well, I might start here. And I'd be like, that's a really good idea. The other piece, though, is I never assign something I'm not trying to work out myself. And I start over. I'm trying to work out the essay, the nonfiction essay they're writing. I'm trying to do it. And so I show them all the, I don't know how to do this, but I'm thinking it might work like this. And teaching them to be problem solvers, not followers. This is your topic. I don't know how to write it, but you can figure it out. And so when when they come to see you now, first year, mm-hmm. the, uh, like, is this something you just acknowledge that there's going to be a gap and that you're going to work on it? Or do you still 
have them come in and say, okay, I, I, I'm hoping you have these skills with you. Like what, uh, what's your take when they get to you first year? Yeah. That, that first year on campus, I kind of thought, you know, whew, I'm in college now. Right. I got, I got, you know, um, they're, they're exactly like the kids I left as seniors. They're only three months older. So I don't know what I expected, but <laughs> they're every bit as nervous and dependent only now they're really outmatched by what college colleges expect independence. So they assign a lot of reading. They don't talk about it in class. Then the kids are like, wait, 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 I'm supposed to read this, you know, that. And I don't want kids feeling like, um, the road is too tangled with thorns for them to to keep going. Um, so it's, you know, we're doing, um, I was just reading notebooks all day today and I love looking at their reflections and what have you learned? I've only had them six times, six classes so far. What are you learning about yourself as a writer? And there were so many of them that said, I actually have a lot of things that I want to say, you know, they're writing next to spoken word poetry or other poetry. We're reading Clint Smith's counting descent right now. And they are, learning how to imitate, they're learning how to study craft. It's all just the kind of stuff I did as with seniors, but it's continually asking them to make decisions instead of making them for them. So you don't do the typical professor thing and just be like, D, go go to the writing center. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a lot of kids I would send to the writing center. (laughs) Well, I'll never forget that note on my uh, one of my papers in, the, in university. <laughs> just like you need to go to the writing center, but, but you know, I'll, I'll hand it to that prop. By year four, she was saying you need to write more, and I'd be happy to write oh, your graduate school nice. um, a reference. So that was, uh, you know, that was on me to to, to pick up my game. But uh, no, that's that's very nice. That even afterwards, you, you kind of nurture that. But this is good for for us to know. Like like these are things we need to nurture now, because mm-hmm. you're right. It's from the the transition from the end of high school to college is or university is three months you know yeah everyone has these big ambitions at the beginning of the year i'm going to be focused and disciplined and studying and two weeks later they're watching tiktok anyway well just the idea too of you spoke about you know there's not a lot of personal reading happening not only is it reading but it's assigned reading and it might not be the stuff you're into or Mm -hmm. if you're doing you know i i know when uh, when i was in university Vito and i studied theology together okay thanks for the theology i'm going to read i don't know how to read this (laughs) um so Mm -hmm. i i really like that idea of being just really cognizant of that and we have to like anything like any whether you're in elementary school middle school high school you know, let's meet those students where they are with it instead of inundate them and throw the book at them, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And my students are in as many different places as yours are, right? The, mm. the essays were in a wide range and the um, reading, I think it's actually harder right now. I don't know how much you guys are experiencing that, but um, they, many of my students that say, you know, I haven't read in years and years, truly did very little reading. If it wasn't um, watching something on their phone, they they weren't really engaged with thinking and ideas. And so we started off with book clubs and I believe in them wholeheartedly, but I still got some kids who are struggling. And I can tell you for certain, if they didn't have time to read in my class where I'm conferring with kids, there would be no reading happening for some of them. 
they're so out of the habit. Which I think brings us to kind of one of your cornerstones there, which is the Book Love Foundation. Um, mm. So for, for so for those listeners who aren't aware, can you just let 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 us let them know quickly, like what what is the Book Love Foundation that you've pioneered started? And so on? 2012, when Book Love came out, I put in the back of the book that there was going to be a foundation to help teachers build classroom libraries. I had no idea what that meant. I just made it, I put it in the book so I would have to do it. And I got some friends together and we decided we would raise as much money as we could to help the teachers. Whenever I would present on what I was doing, they'd say, I would love to do this, but I don't have money for the books. And so I just wanted to make that happen. Um, the board has... I mean, they've changed. We've had a lot of board members move in and out, but um, we are now $40,000 short of having raised and given raised a million dollars. I mean, it's like unbelievable. We just, wow. we're giving 14 wow. Canadian teachers libraries this year. Um, and we've been doing that regularly. So they're only U.S. and Canada because we've got two vendors, um, one in Canada and one in the U.S. And I just every year am stunned by the beauty and the applications and the, the the love of teachers for their work and wanting to get better. Actually, one of one of those people is a guest on our show, Brett Walker, season two. He was the recipient of he was a recipient <laughs> yes. of, he was a recipient of uh, that fund. So, the, what 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 you get out of that is uh, what five hundred books or. It depends. Um, the board now splits the grants between there's grants for two thousand, a thousand, and five hundred. And it really depends on where the teacher is in their practice. Some teachers will apply and really want book club books. And you might be able to do two rounds of book clubs for $1,000. But it's allowed us to spread the wealth more. So we have, you know, 300 some teachers in 41 states and six provinces or something that have been recipients. Like phenomenal. phenomenal. Isn't it amazing, though? All these people work so hard and we've ne- we don't pay anybody anything that's, that's why i was begging chris to be our producer and i was like <laughs> <laughs> we've lost a producer but we don't pay anybody so <laughs> we just believe every dollar's got to go to teachers they're doing such incredible work and if you have the books the kids read and they find their passion and, yes. and i you know i that is the thing that gets me you know, you never know what book is going to make this kid love physics, or you never know which book is yeah. going to make that kid become an astronaut or become a veterinarian. Because like, to, to me, being able to put the books in the hands of people, it is just a ticking time bomb of awesome. Oh, yes. It is. That's a great phrase. And you just, I know you have incredible amounts of success stories with this. One of my favorites, when I started building my own classroom library, grade eight student kept bragging. I don't read more than six pages of a book, would take six pages, put it back, take six pages, put it back. But I was like, I'm going to get them. So finally, uh, after doing this for two months, I said, hey, have you read the Hunger Games? And he's just like, what's that? And I said, oh, I think you should give it a try. It's about a bunch of kids getting in an arena and trying to kill each other. He's like, oh, within two weeks, within two weeks. He had read the entire trilogy and he's like, do you have anything similar to this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and like, you just, you never, you never know. Yes. I know my descriptions of books are pretty crass, but it seems to work. Chris is dying oh. on the other end right there. It's like the Netflix movie description of book descriptions. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's what you need, right? Cause you're in the moment and you're just like, I got to sell this book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, it does. I had grade eights reading Neil Stevenson. I would barely recommend him to adults and I grade eights yeah. wanted to read that. So, um, 
Phenomenal. Now, part part of the Book Love Foundation is you do a summer workshop now as a fundraiser, which I've been a part of a few times. And you have these yeah. phenomenal books that you select uh, to read and you get these amazing authors on. So uh, take us through, like what decisions go through which books you're going to pick for that uh, summer fundraiser? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we finished the book club at the end of July and in a couple of weeks, it starts up the planning for next summer. And we're all dreading because October means we start again because it is unbelievable to put together. Um, we start with a Padlet and we, all of us that are on the um, summer fundraiser team, put up suggestions for books we want to read. And we have always done a professional development book um, and then tried to choose three books for middle school and three books for the elementary that um, will extend thinking and uh, just allow books to be read that teachers might not find on their own. And we have a couple um, qualifications, like now we insist that the book that we read, the author will talk to us that summer, because we want teachers to know these people as writers. And um, if we had 1500 people in the book club this summer, so if we're gonna sell 1500 copies of your book, then you coming on is not too big of an ask. And so I got to interview Clint Smith. I mean, mm. his book just got long listed for the National Book Award, the How the Word is Passed. And, you know, I, I could go on and on about all the people we interviewed. I think we did 50 um, author interviews this summer. Ernesto Cisneros, who won the um, Bella Prupe Award for um, Efren Divided. He's a an eighth grade teacher in Santa Ana, California, who writes this novel that wins the biggest award for Latinx literature from Newberry. I mean, that's, it's just, it's become a place where teachers gather and they kind of escape whatever is happening in their own district. Like you can feel alone. Like you don't have a lot of people who believe what you believe. And then they gather there and they, they form relationships and stay connected. And it's so encouraging when you see other people want to do what you want to do and support each other like that. That's what I loved. And also, yeah, like the the process to what what you're picking, you come up with phenomenal stuff. So, like, I, I remember some still stay with me. What made Maddie run? Like the anxiety oh, of young man. people. Yeah. Uh, cultivating genius like that yeah like you just, just just goldie muhammad, goldie muhammad. Oh. I, I, you you had uh you had micah borns this 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 summer did you not this past absolutely summer? he was on the year before as well he's a long beach poet i just I, love him he presented with kelly and i for ncte oh i bring him in my classroom all the time like my students oh. just go nuts for him so i'm I, yeah he, he just released a book as well right here comes the streamer Yes. And um, his new album, I think it's called Detox. If you follow him on Instagram, you'll see him. Michael Bornet, he's in Long Beach, California. Sorry, Bornet. He is, he is amazing. Um, I think that one of the things, Native Tongue is probably one of the ones that teachers uh, might be familiar with, but he talks about the language of Shakespeare. And I think that so many spoken word artists are pushing back against what has been common practice, a particular canon. And that's what the Book Love Foundation has been trying to help teachers transition to, is to knowing more authors of color, to knowing the range of the work that um, our students deserve to have in front of them. I'm so <laughs> impressed because <laughs> you literally started this foundation because you forced yourself to do it after writing it in Book Love, mm. uh, your book there. And, and now you've, you've raised close to a million dollars to help teachers across Canada and the U.S. Well, that's just it, right? Can you imagine if every teacher planted a seed right now that said, this is what I want to do? 
and planted mm-hmm. a seed and let it grow like that. And you see what your seed has made this amazing forest of readers and passionate teachers and passionate students who are learning so much. Can you imagine if we all sat back and, and what's the big thing I want to do? I'm planting the seed today. Unapologetically. <laughs> I believe in this. I'm serious. I, I believe in this and I want to make it happen. Think about that. Yes. Absolutely. And and like you have been in that. That's that's what's been amazing. No, I, I and I I'm also thinking though for your for summer program now, this has got to be a phenomenal platform for authors. Like I, I at this point, do you have authors asking to come in? Because I think this would be a great uh We do. Um and we get a lot of requests to be on the podcast as well. And we want to promote as many people as we can that are within our mission. So um, we have Julia Torres, who's an amazing librarian and just human being um, in Denver, co-produce or co-hosts the podcast with me because neither one of us is a producer. Um, and she brings in so many voices that I wouldn't know otherwise. And so we're constantly looking at um, what's our mission? What are we trying to accomplish? And one of the things is that Uh, Teachers of color are such a small percentage of the population that we are looking for teachers we can support. And how do we support them? How can we um, lift up their, you know, community in the world of teaching? Because I, we are all white people. And when we walk into a school, most people look like us. In the U.S., it's 82% of teachers are white. Can you imagine if you're the only person of color on a staff, how much harder it is to do everything? So we're trying to figure out ways to um, support teachers who are trying to stay in the classroom when sometimes the, at least in the US, schools and classrooms can feel a bit hostile to people of color. You know, we've had those huge political things going on in the US that make it a difficult place for people to be. That's that's just a mission that unfortunately is just has been ongoing and thankfully because of efforts have finally been given the recognition to say hey no 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 we need to do this now and we should have been doing this uh, the whole time I mean we we've like you said we we've had a teacher on this podcast who was that lone teacher of color in her school yeah for decades and she fought for sixteen years just to get Black History Month celebrated. Like, yeah. like, could you imagine like that? Like, it, and it just took a, a change of demographic in the school to have more students of color before that was kind of granted. It, it was, it's, 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 it's tough. And so, uh, mm-hmm. thank you for uplifting those voices and 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 working with that. Like, that's a that's amazing. That's phenomenal. We, we asked this exact question to, to Kelly. It's season three, but we need to hear from you now because. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> no we, we we need to we need to hear we from want you, the whole story. We want the whole story. <laughs> Cuz because after this we are we are we are nominating you for best teacher in the world for putting your nomination in. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Chris and I joke about it uh nominating each other cuz we know we're never going to win in this lifetime but you you have every yeah, chance no. to win at least 50 times. But for 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 over 30 years you've been mm-hmm critical in changing the landscape of a language arts classroom both in form and function like what are you most proud of that you see in classrooms today and and where do you feel we still have a long way to go Ooh, that's a that's an interesting question i would say that um it really depends on the school where i'm at because i don't see this everywhere but i am thrilled 
when I walk by a classroom and kids have books in their hands and they're engaged in reading, right? You just can see it. You can see it on a kid's face. We know if they're reading or they're not, you can see that. I am thrilled when I'm in a classroom that celebrates the process of writing, not just products. And so um, sometimes there's uh, displays of all of the work kids did to rough draft, or here's their planning, or here's you know kids recording little mini videos of my students do notebook tours. What did they learn in their notebooks this semester? And you know recording those. I like the celebration of writing as an ongoing process. We continue to get better the more we learn and study and work. Um, more than here are the best essays in our school, right? Instead of competitive celebrating that students are uniquely themselves and their writing's going to reflect that if we let it. And so where, where, where do you, where do you see we still have a long way to go? Well, I, I know that it's been a, a rough last year and a half, but when I interview students at the start of the year, as I've been doing, and I say, so talk to me about the last book you read. And, and one of them says dog man in elementary school. And one of them says, I, I can't name a single book. And in fact, says to me, you know, Ms. Kittle, if I read this, this will be the first book I think I can ever remember actually reading. I, I weep for that because I was a kid who used um, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Chronicles of Narnia to escape what was a very chaotic house. And I had the opportunity to be with Bilbo marching towards that dragon when stuff was wild. And that is mental health. And that's, you know, a, a way that I be, I developed an identity as someone who wanted to keep working in school. And that's possible for every single kid we teach. You know, I, I had a girl, the girl who said she had last read Dogman, who said, I can't read any of the books you've assigned in book clubs unless it has pictures in it. And I said, well, there's a graphic novel choice, but I don't want that one. I said, okay, so these are the ones I would recommend. She comes in yesterday, you know, <laughs> Long way down, Miss Kittle, I, I, I couldn't stop. We need that. I couldn't stop. We need that moment with every kid every year. So when I know that kids have gone a whole year and they didn't really read, it breaks my heart. No, and I agree because Chris and I are also very avid readers and reading was our outlet as well. I, I'm going to speak for you, Chris, because <laughs> sometimes we, we, we're one of the you same. How I roll. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. And, and, and to, to hear that in 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th university, college, I haven't read yeah. since whatever. I, for me, I always find grade 6 is the cutoff where I'm from. Mm. But I, I don't know in your area. But yeah, it, it is heartbreaking. So we have a long way to go, folks. Get books in kids' hands. Books yeah. in hands. <laughs> <laughs> don't just give Time them the cannon. Read. Don't give them That's the right. cannon. Give them, give them, give them, give them a choice. Give them opportunity. Um, wow. Mm. Let them see themselves in the literature too, right? That, that's a big one. Yes. Right? That whole really Redeen Sims Bishop, right? Mirrors, windows, sliding glass doors, that they see themselves in the world, that they need all of that. But we don't all love the same things. You guys probably, your reading list this month doesn't look like mine, I bet. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I, w I would say I'm thinking about the things I've read. Yeah, it's, it's out there. <laughs> you know, isn't that great that we love yes. different things? Yes. yes. So, uh, 
Absolutely. And, and 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 I know you're starting to see a bit of shift up here. I know in, in Ontario where I'm from, we completely replaced our grade 11 English curriculum with a native studies course to uphold uh, um, authors of Indigenous uh, First Nation Métis Inuit um, background and, and, and voice to give voice to that. And that's across all the streams that we have mm -hmm. here. And, and so you kind of see that shift slowly happening. Um, but yeah, we, we, we've got a long way to go to, to put books in hands. So at the end of the day, what, what do you think teachers should be unapologetic about in their practice? Well, we are here to teach kids, not curriculum. So be unapologetic about putting kids first. And that means that you're letting them write about things that really matter to them. Right? Even letting them sounds like such a weird phrase to put in there, right? But you're helping kids discover their identities as readers and writers. Be unapologetic that you're teaching human beings. You're not teaching books and you're not teaching particular essay forms. You're teaching these kids to love the play of language, to want to put their lives on paper. Vito, Chris. Here in Fort McMurray, Alberta, the sun's getting mighty low, my friend. And, it won't, and, <laughs> and it's going to be gone for a while. Yes, I'm about to enter eternal darkness. Uh, that's a lie. We have dark, we have light for a few hours during the day. It's great. But you know what that means, Vito? It means that it's everyone's favorite time of the year. It is time for the Pulsing Pulsin points. points. The Pulsing Points from tonight. Listeners, Penny Kittle on the show. I'm sitting here and I'm like, what wasn't a Polson point tonight? Listeners, teachers, educators, readers, writers. Find the good in all of your assignments. I just love the idea of loving teaching, loving being on the journey with young people as they learn. Find the good in all your assignments. Don't have that, you know, parking lot conversation. Be pumped about whatever it is. Hey, Polson point number two of the night. The heart of what we do is conferring with students. Be with them. Guide them. Talk with them. Listen to them. Be beside them. I, I love that. I love that. Polson point number three on the night. Never lose sight of the goals, but ask yourself, what are you going to do in the moment? Yeah, we have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of goals. We have a lot of things we box. Never forget, what are you going to do in the moment? Because that might be the most important thing for that student ever. We never know. We never know the reach. Polson point number four tonight, and I love this one. This one, you know I love this one, Penny Kittle. Raise that curiosity. Get them curious about something and get them on it. I love that. I love that. Friends, Polson point number five of the night. Teachers, you are not alone. You're not alone in your passion. You're not alone in your drive. You're not alone in your love of teaching. You're not alone in your love of students. You are not alone. Penny even said tonight, like, check out these amazing communities that are available online, in your community, in your school. You're not alone. But Vito, you know I can't just do pulse and points anymore because there was big vibes all over the place tonight. You were just vibing up and down. I'm, that I'm vibing. vibing. I'm vibing. Hey, if you fall in love with teaching, it's gonna carry. It'll carry you. When you go into that class, 
what a what a way, what a lens in which to view a class, the young restlessness and hope that those students have. Celebrate the process, not just the product. Listeners, celebrate the process just as much. Put that, put everything up on the wall. Be pumped about it. And the biggest vibe tonight, get reading. Get reading. Oh my goodness. I'm going to get it tattooed across my arm. Get reading. I love it. And don't forget, be unapologetic tonight. Be unapologetic about putting kids first, about teaching human beings, not just books, not just content, not curriculum, human beings. Penny Kittle, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. This thank was an you. honor. Thank you. Oh, thank you both for being passionate. Just putting together a podcast that reaches people. You know, people are driving into work and they're listening to you too. And they're going, yes, I've got this. <laughs> right. That's what you do for them. So thank you. Oh, well, no one wants to hear us talk. That's why we bring on wonderful people like yourself. So th <laughs> thank you. No, we really appreciate oh. it. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unapologist podcast. Join us this season as we talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. The Unapologist Podcast.